you all back to your seats. We're going to get started here. Just going to say a word of prayer and, uh, and then invite Joy to come and read John 21 for us. And then Keith will come and share with us uh, from the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for your word that is living and active. Uh, thank you for Keith and for the message that you have given him for us this morning. Pray that you would bless him, that you'd give him freedom as he shares with us and prepare our hearts for what you have this morning. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, and th but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the, disciple dare, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went to where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Thank you, Joy, for reading the word this morning. And good morning, everyone. It's good to be here again to share God's word. As I recall, I think I spoke on the, uh, yeah, they need to turn the microphone on, I guess, right? I think I got everything on here, right? Are we good here? Testing, one, two, three, there we go. Okay. The joys of technology, right? <laughs> so I believe the last time I was here, I spoke on, or not the last time, but the last two times I spoke on the, the Gospel of John was blind Bartimaeus uh, and how he was healed, and then also uh, Lazarus, John 11. So continuing the theme of John, uh, we're going to go to John chapter 21. And you can see from the bulletin I've entitled it, Breakfast with Jesus. Restoration after failure. So failure, that is one of the topics for us this morning. Now, we have all witnessed failure, right? If you follow sports, the Toronto Raptors lost a few weeks ago their first round of the playoffs. And then you might recall the Montreal Canadiens, right? The Stanley Cup finalists last year had the worst record this year of all the teams in the NHL. I'm sure some of you are sad about that, some of you are happy about that. And then, yesterday, uh, I was about 7.45, I heard this wailing and, and weeping, and I just wondered, what was that? And it sounded like some man, and I opened my window, and, and sure enough, I could recognize the voice. You see, Pastor Dennis is close, living close to me, and, and he was weeping and crying because his beloved Toronto Maple Leafs <laughs> have failed again. So he used up a lot of Kleenexes yesterday, so I thought I would bring him a box of Kleenexes here. So, so Dennis, you can... <laughs> <laughs> Another year of failure for the Leafs. Like, I remember, like, I'm, I was crying, too, because, you know, I grew up, they only had the two Canadian teams, right? So either you were a Leaf fan or you were a Canadians fan, and I grew up cheering for Toronto as a, as a youngster. And I still remember their, their last Stanley Cup, 1967. And they even haven't got out of the first round of the playoffs since 2004. But on the good side, the Oilers won. So we're happy about that, right? So that's good. <laughs> okay. So actually, after an election, the Monday after an election, there's going to be somebody that's very happy because they won the election. But think about all the people, the candidates and their supporters who are experiencing failure. But not only have we all witnessed failure, I imagine that all of us have experienced failure. I remember a social studies exam I had in high school. And, you know, I was a pretty good student, and I got this test, and, and I thought, oh, good, this is an easy exam. So I wrote off quickly the answers and turned it in. Oh, I got a good grade, and I was pretty excited. And then all of a sudden, and I was the first one out of the classroom, and easy, simple test. And I got the test back the next day, and I realized I failed the test. Couldn't believe it. Like, what, what, how's that? Like, the first page looked fine. The answers were good. And then I turned the page over. 
and there was another page to do. So I did not pass that test. Also, I, was, I took a course to become a, driving, a car driving instructor. You can take a course for that, and I took a course. And then you have to take the test. And you have to be with the examiner, and you treat the examiner as if they were a student. And you have to go through the whole process of teaching them how to drive a car. And the first thing that you do in this test was to do a walk around. If you've ever taken driver education, you've probably done or you should have done a walk around the vehicle with your uh, professor or teacher. And you have to explain about the, the different lights and the wheels and the tires, the good shape, and et cetera, et cetera. And for some reason, I forgot to mention one of the lights, either a signal light, I can't remember, or a brake light, and I didn't even get to finish the rest of the test. Failed right before it hardly even started. So go home, try again next time. And recently, I became a uh, examiner for people doing speaking tests who are new immigrants to Canada. And I examine their speaking abilities. And the first, in my training, the first client that I had, you know, anyways, I was monitored by my uh, supervisor, and I did actually terrible on the first time around and did not pass. But uh, so I've experienced failure, I'm sure all of you have as well. And some people have failed in family relationships. Perhaps it's been a marital failure or broken relationships with children or with parents or with siblings, and it's not pleasant. Some people fail at work. How devastating it can be to, to be fired from your job or to be laid off. I remember at one point I was uh, selling and servicing software for uh, lawyers. And I came into work in the morning, and all of a sudden I realized that all of my appointments were taken from me and given to my boss. And, oh, what's going on? Then my boss, oh, yeah, sorry, I should have told you, but uh, you're laid off. You can go home now. <laughs> I overhired people, and I don't need you anymore. Anyways, we've all experienced things like that. And we've all made mistakes and failed in our most important relationship, our relationship with God. We have all failed and disappointed and grieved our Heavenly Father. The Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But I do want to make a difference, differentiation between making a mistake or failing, which is not necessarily a sin, although often the two are related. Failure and sin can sometimes be related. For example, if you have a child and they accidentally knock over their glass of milk, Right? That, that's a mistake, right? That's not something wrong or rebellious. However, if they purposely knock it over, it's a little bit different. I remember being in a restaurant with my, uh, with my grandson and uh, his family, my daughter and son-in-law, and he was sitting on his father's lap, and uh, they had this big glass of Coca-Cola. And, you know, a two-year-old kind of gets bored in a restaurant sitting on his father's lap, and I actually remember distinctly seeing this look in my grandson's face. And he had a look on his face, and he was looking at that Coca-Cola, and he just whacked it right off the table and right all over onto his, his grandmother's lap and her purse. And it just made such a huge mess, right? Now that was a rebellious. He did that purposely. He knew what he was doing. And it was, probably wouldn't be so bad if it was a you know, a glass of Pepsi or something like that. But this was Coca-Cola, right? I mean, it's my, my son-in-law's addiction. Anyways, the point is that we have all failed. And we can identify with Peter, 
who failed, as we recall, when he denied that he even knew Jesus three times. His failure was especially bad in light of his boast when he said, Oh, I will never deny you. I will never leave you. I will even be willing to die for you. So you can imagine his feelings of failure and disappointment and self-loathing. How could I have done that? So when Peter heard the news that Jesus had risen from the dead, I think he had some mixed feelings about that. And Jesus understood Peter's dilemma, I'm sure. We notice in the Gospel of Mark that when the angel at the tomb tells the women, the angel says this, Go tell the disciples and Peter that you have seen the Lord. There was a hint already of restoration for Peter. So we all admit like Peter, we have all received the badge of failure in our lives. So the question comes, now what? Failure should not be the final chapter of one's life. There is life after failure. I went on to pass other social studies tests. I went on to pass my driver instructor's exam, became a car driving instructor. I ended up passing my speaking examiner's test. And people, Peter also was able to be restored. We want to take a look at this this morning. We all can be restored after failure. We note in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark that Jesus tells the, the apostles, the disciples, to return to Galilee where they would meet and see Jesus again. So here we find the disciples in Galilee and Peter and some of the other disciples, and Peter decides to go fishing. Now, we don't know why. Perhaps Peter was bored, or they needed the money, or they needed the food. They were hungry. We're not sure why. And uh, they were not very successful. They had fished all night and caught nothing. Most fishermen likely can identify. Anybody here like fishing? Anybody go fishing every once in a while? Yeah, we have some fishermen and women here. And... Uh, so I have done my share of fishing in my life as well, and I know the feeling of being shut out, of not catching anything. So if you want to experience failure, try fishing, right? It's not fun to spend all that time sitting in, likely, an uncomfortable boat, perhaps in the cold or the rain or the heat, and not catch anything. And it's especially bad when you see fishing jumping all around you and you hear them laughing at you, right? It makes it even worse. Well, when the disciples and Peter realize it was Jesus on the shore, we find that Peter jumps in. This shows his passion and impulsiveness. What is our attitude and response when we have an opportunity to spend time with Jesus? I recall the modern parable. You might have heard this story of how, how Jesus is in the house of our soul. And he invites us regularly into the kitchen to have breakfast with him in the morning. But we just find it really, really hard to get up and spend time with Jesus. I wonder if Peter was tempted to maybe to lift the anchor and just to go in the opposite direction. It's not easy to want to spend time with Jesus. I remember a song that Keith Green wrote, and he says, the words go something like this, Jesus died for us. And yet we don't even want to get out of bed sometimes to meet with him. Another thing that we note here is that Jesus supplies the bread and the fish, and he even prepared it. 
Life is made up of concrete realities. It would be nice, wouldn't it, if we just had, could spend all day in spiritual contemplation and in prayer and reading the Bible and just listening to music, but we need to live and to make a living. And it takes time and energy to prepare meals and to go shopping and to clean up and all that kind of stuff, right? And Jesus, he knows this about life. And, and uh, he helps us. We notice it was Jesus who prepared the food and the fish and the bread. And he meets our physical needs. He's very aware of this. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33, I'll just read that. says this, so do not worry, Jesus speaking, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to, to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So we see that Jesus will take care of our needs. I thought it was an interesting point here, too, that Jesus also asked them to bring some of their fish. Maybe he, they had a great appetite, but we notice that it's working together. God doing his part, and we do our part as well. We plant the seeds. A lot of you are into gardening right now. We have to plant the seeds, right? Oh, nothing's growing in my garden. Well, did you plant seeds? It would help, right? And, but then God does send the rain and, and the sun to help things grow. So it's a cooperation. It's working together. In verses 15 to 25, we see the restoration from failure. Have you ever been confronted or corrected by someone in authority? This is not usually a pleasant experience. It's a rather awkward and uncomfortable moment for both parties. I'm sure this was an awkward moment for Jesus and certainly for Peter who is likely squirming and a little bit red in the face. The first thing we note in this awkward encounter is that Jesus does not refer to Peter by his name Peter, but rather by Simon. As you know, Jesus gave Simon the name Peter, meaning rock, but he had not lived up to this reputation as a rock. And Peter, no doubt, no doubt felt the sting of being called Simon rather than Peter. We also note that Jesus confronts Peter by a fire and in public, which was mirroring what took place at the time that he denied Jesus. Peter had sinned publicly, so he was also corrected publicly. You know, it's never pleasant to be corrected, and worse when we're corrected in public. I remember one time when I was in, in, in school, and this one lady teacher, our biology teacher, she was quite a, a large, strong woman, and she had a reputation of being very uh, strict, and she was. And when she walked down the hall, all the just students just kind of parted and let her walk, gave her her space, right? She had her, she'd actually would pick up people and actually lift them up and throw them out of her room. <laughs> True stories. <laughs> Anyways, our teacher had left for the moment when I forget what class it was. And you can imagine a class of, of uh, uh, of students and kind of get a little bit noisy when the teacher leaves. So anyway, she happened to be walking down the hall and she came in and we were all making this noise, right? And so she started to, to, to yell at us and to, to ball us out, right? And uh, actually, I made this mistake and I just thought it was kind of like 
a little funny, you know, what she was doing. And so I kind of smirked and had the smirk and laugh on my face. And, and then so she started to bawl me out. And that was not a very pleasant experience to be corrected and bawled out in front of all my, my fellow students there. But we see the main reason for this confrontation that Jesus had with Peter. Jesus wanted Peter to know that he was loved and he wanted him to be restored. He wanted to be in a right relationship with him and to be restored to ministry. Not only for Peter's sake, but also the other disciples needed to know that Peter had been restored and that he had been reinstated and recommissioned as a leader. So there, as you can see, there were three questions, three times Jesus asked him, and these mirror the three denials. Before Jesus can be followed properly, the sins and failures in our lives need to be dealt with. Peter was reminded of his failure. We need to confront our failures, to learn from them, and then to move on. Some people are so wounded that they can't get over it or forgive themselves. They allow the defeat to shape them and to define them. Imagine Peter, rather than accepting this restoration process, continues to grovel in despair and self-condemnation, saying, how can God accept me and trust me again? How can others respect and trust me? How can I respect and trust and forgive myself? I think I will go back to being a fisherman the rest of my life. I'm not cut out for this ministry thing. I'm afraid I will just fail again. I'm sure that Peter felt unworthy of being in ministry. He certainly realized that he was not being the rock-like leader that he thought himself to be. We've all failed the Lord in some ways. We likely have all done something that has disrupted our relationship with the Lord and would disqualify us from serving him. I recall a meeting of pastors that was gathered to discuss a disciplinary issue of a, felly, of a fellow clergy person. And one of the older pastors, who I greatly respected, commented, all of us have failed and deserve to be disqualified for one reason or another. So we must be careful not to be overly harsh with this pastor who has fallen. Everyone fails and falls, but not everyone is willing or able to get back up again. There's a quote from a commentator and theologian, John Stott, that I'd like to read. He says this, no matter how desperate our failure or how deep-seated our shame, God can forgive and renew us and then use us in his service. Failure is never final with God. And then he quotes another author who says, you ask me what forgiveness means? It is the wonder of being trusted again by God in the place where I disgraced him. Jesus gives an offer of restoration. And he begins this process of restoration with a piercing question of the heart. He says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Jesus gets right to the root of the matter. Peter's denial was not just a sin of his tongue or a lack of courage. It was a matter of the heart. When Jesus says, do you love these more than me? Some commentators think, well, is he saying, do you love me more than your fellow, your friends here? But more likely, he's saying, do you love me more 
then these other, these other disciples love me. This is likely the case because it was how he boasted. Wow, no matter whoever fails you, I'm not going to fail you. So he's having to admit his failure of comparing himself with others. I'd like to comment a little bit on this worse, the use of this word love in this passage. There are three words in Greek for the English word love. The first one is eros. It's more the sensual or erotic aspect of love. Then there's the word agape love. And this is the highest form used of love. And it's the idea of divine love and the idea of will and purpose. And often involves self-sacrificing as well as affection. Then there's the, the word phileo, which implies friendship and fondness and affection. And both these words can be used synonymously, agape and phileo. And, they do re and both are used of God in different contexts and of people. But in this story here, we can see some of the subtle uses here. The first two times, Jesus asked Peter, he uses the word agape. He says, Peter, do you agape me? And the first two times, Peter answers, I, Jesus, I phileo you. Okay? And the third time, Jesus says, Peter, or Simon, do you phileo me? And then Peter, the third time, says, yes, Jesus, I phileo you. But he never does actually say the agape. And was Peter hurt? It says that Peter was hurt because he asked him the third time, right? As if to rub it in, like the three denials. Or was the fact that he was hurt because of the usage of the word phileo instead of agape? I believe that Jesus was reminding Peter of his boast and of his denial. He was reminding Peter of his need for humility and also that Peter should not rely on his own strength, but on God's strength. Jesus was also questioning the sincerity and integrity of Peter's love. And Peter's reply was, I believe, was a humble response. No more boasting, no more saying he loves him more than others. His response, I believe, was also an honest response. I think Peter used the word phileo for a reason. He recognized his lack of self-sacrificing and mature agape love. He was admitting that he did love Jesus, that it was real, but that it was not a perfect, mature love and that there was room for growth and maturity. And in Peter's reply, the first two times, he says, Peter, Peter says, you know that I love you. The first two times that he uses it, he uses the Greek word odea, which means uh, like head knowledge. And then the last time he says, Jesus, you really know. You know you've experienced the love that I have for you. God does know our hearts. The fact, this fact could be troubling, right? But it can and also should be comforting. Because the God loves us. He's the one who loves us most. And he's the one who knows us best. There's a song similar to that. It says this, The one who knows me best loves me most. Imagine that. God knows all of our failures. He knows all of our mistakes. He knows all of our sins. He knows all of that. And he loves us the most. Isn't that amazing? God's love is so deep. So God desires from us humility and honesty. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15 says this. Can you read it with me? I think it's there on the PowerPoint. Let's read it together. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly 
and to revive the heart of the contrite. And then Psalm 51, verse 17 says, let's read together. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. If Jesus were come to come to us and probe the depth of our love, I wonder what he would find. If he were to ask you or to ask me, do you love me more than? Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than your entertainment? More than hockey? More than food? More than friends? More than family? What would be our reply? I think my reply would be something like this. Jesus, you know that I love you. Help me to love you more. Help me to love you above other people and other things. Help me to have a more mature love for you. And in these questions regarding love, I believe, I really believe that Peter felt restored. He was restored in his relationship with Jesus. But what now? How was he to fit into God's mission? And this is the second thing that we, we see. Responsibility after failure. We've seen the reality of failure. We've seen the restoration after failure. And now we see responsibility after failure. We note each time when Jesus responds to Peter, he says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Now that Jesus had restored Peter to a proper relationship, Jesus was restoring Peter to his position of responsibility. He was giving Peter another chance. Isn't it great that God gives us another chance and then another chance and another chance? God doesn't give up on us. It's important to note that before responsibility comes the issue of love. Jesus didn't just recommission Peter without doing the heart surgery. More than our service and even before our service, Jesus desires our hearts and our sincere love. We are to serve because we love, rather than just to serve out of duty or to earn God's favor. And Peter was given the responsibility of shepherding God's people. Peter, we know, was a fisherman. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? He was an evangelist. But Peter was also a shepherd, caring for the souls of people, and the two go together. And we know that by God's grace and by God's spirit, Peter was very effective in his ministry. Jesus' risk of giving Peter a second chance paid off. Jesus calls and commissions each one of us and gives each of us responsibilities. And it will look different for each person, and it is tailored to who we are and to our gifting. But God does commission each one of us to do his will. And most of us have been tasked and called to do some type of shepherding. God has entrusted people into our care. It could be our children. It could be, it could be other members of our family. It could be our friends at school, or our colleagues at work, or our neighbors, and people at church. And we are to take our responsibilities seriously. Jesus is concerned with Peter, not, but not just with Peter, but also with his starting, beginning church. Following Jesus and loving Jesus means accepting responsibility for Jesus' people, the church. Commitment to Christ involves commitment to the church of Christ, and we are responsible to each other. It's not just the pastor. It's just not just the, the leaders of the church who are to shepherd 
We are all responsible for one another. We are called to shepherd each other in the church. And following Jesus, we see, also involves serving others and being willing to die for Jesus. Jesus showed Peter that if he were to fulfill his promise of loyalty, he would have to follow him, even to his own cross. Peter had said that he would follow Jesus anywhere. Back in John chapter 13, he says, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. And Jesus said to him at that time, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. That was in John chapter 13. And now he clarifies. He says, you know what? In those verses, people are going to take you, dress you, and take you where, you're, where you don't want to go. And the early church leader, the, the tradition, the early church leader Clement says that part, Peter was martyred in Rome under Nero in 64 A.D. And they also said that he was crucified. And the, the tradition says that he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified the way Jesus was. Can you crucify me upside down? So I'm not sure if that really happened or not, but that's what tradition says. It has been said that we're not ready to live until we are ready to die. And we are to glorify God even in our death. In Philippians that you've been studying with, with Pastor Dennis, Paul says in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, that it was his desire, Paul's desire to glorify God in his life as well as in his death. We glorify God in our life by trusting and not doubting, by praising rather than complaining, by hoping rather than despairing. And we glorify God in our death by finishing well and being faithful to the end. In conclusion, in review, we've all experienced failure in various ways and forms. And like Peter, we have all failed and disappointed ourselves, others, and God. Satan does not only love to trip us up, but he loves to keep us down. And it's great to know that Jesus loves us too much to leave us in the despair of failure. He wants to restore us. He wants to meet with us. And Jesus invites us to come, to dine with him. This invitation to have breakfast with Jesus. A similar invitation is in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah had given all these different uh, failures of Israel, listed all of them. It's a terrible, depressing chapter. And at the very, near the end, he says, God gives an invitation. Come, let us reason together. There's an invitation. Jesus says, come, let's talk about this. So what does God desire and expect of us after we have failed? First of all, we are to come to him, just like Peter did. Rather than run away, to come to Jesus. Rather than to ignore him, we are to run towards him. And Jesus desires humility and a contrite heart and honesty. To be willing to admit to ourselves and to God and to others that we have failed. And be willing to receive God's grace and restoration. We need then to have the courage once again to resume our calling and responsibility with renewed dependence on God's strength. And perhaps there's someone here today that actually needs to offer that uh, opportunity for restoration to other people as well, perhaps members of the family or friends or neighbors, to say, I'm willing to offer that invitation to be restored. So I want to encourage you to take time this, throughout this week to hear that question that Jesus asked to Peter. Do you love me? And after we have a restored relationship with Jesus, we can listen for Jesus' instruction as to what he would have us to do. 
So just some concluding applications. The offer is there to come to Jesus, to be humble, to be honest, to accept God's gracious offer of restoration, to focus on the heart issue of loving God, and then to obey and serve out of love for God. Let's just take a moment of silent prayer as we reflect on these words of Jesus to us today. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. Thank you that you do not leave us in our failure, but your desire is to restore us, Lord. So just help us to always remember that and then to come to you with a humble and honest heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.